Welcome to this week's episode of Engines, EVs, and Espresso. The podcast that's caffeine, machine, and all things in between. What are we doing? What are we talking about this week? Are we drinking things? Uh, coffee? Yeah, I've had enough to kill somebody probably. <laughs> this podcast does not condone any murder. I'm over here in like gremlin mode, so nobody mind me. <laughs> Do we want to maybe change up the coffee discussion a little bit and talk about not what we're drinking right now, because some of us slash all of us may have been a little over caffeinated today, but what our favorite, say, flavored latte might be? Ooh, flavors. Let's go. Do you have flavors on the mind, Allie? I absolutely do. This is just selfishly, I had a weird thing and I want to talk about it. So this is all, okay. you're all just pawns in my machinations. Um, but I had a controversial but interesting latte um, the other day. And it was a lavender flavored latte. What's um, controversial ew. about lavender? <laughs> in coffee, I think it's weird. <laughs> What? Hold on. What? No, I've had lavender and coffee. I've had lavender and matcha. Okay. Lavender and matcha is better. But I need Molly to quantify or qualify that you statement. Lavender and anything but body products is awful. If I wanted to eat myself or body products, I would eat it. And I don't want to eat it. It doesn't belong in desserts. It doesn't belong in coffee. And it's unfortunate because there's a huge lavender festival in Michigan. And I want to go really bad because it's in a lavender field. But it's all lavender eating things. And I'm not a fan. It's definitely one of those things. It's kind of like mushrooms where I'm eating it and I'm like, this is gross objectively and I shouldn't like it, but I do. And I, I'm obsessed with lavender flavored everything. I don't know about this. Like, I think they were a little heavy with it in this particular latte, but I could see definitely how it could work for me. Um, and especially in a matcha as well. I think that would be delicious. But it's one of those things that I get is not for everybody, for sure. Oh, when uh, you're in Austin here uh, next week, my coffee shop downstairs make a great lavender matcha. I'm so excited already. Oh, my gosh. Uh, And Molly is going to make faces at you. I will be standing there in disgust. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. I cannot wait. (laughs) There has to be a TikTok video that comes out of this. Absolutely. Okay, so what is everybody else's favorite non-lavender flavored caffeinated beverage? I am a brown sugar oat milk latte fiend with a little bit of sea salt on it. It like counteracts the sweet. You get a little of the salt, pulls on the oat. It's delicious. That's my go-to. Brown sugar or anything. I don't do a lot of flavored stuff usually, but something that I had recently... And this in no way is saying that's a good or a bad thing. The pistachio latte that Starbucks did this spring, it was too sweet, but I do enjoy pistachio-y things. I didn't mind the pistachio flavor. It was just the artificial syrupiness that came with it. But I do always go to a couple of pumps of hazelnut if I'm doing ever anything flavored latte. I used to do a lot of white mocha at Starbucks with a couple of pumps of hazelnut in it, which is actually really good. Can I give you my other controversial flavor opinion? Okay, let's go. It, hazelnut is the most let down of all flavors. It smells great. 
you think it's going to taste great and then you take a sip of it and it's awful and underwhelming and it does not taste like it smells i think hazelnut is like it's a dupe it's like oh i got you with the smell and then it doesn't taste that good <laughs> oh fight 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 i was legitimately hurt on that one <laughs> i'm sorry i'm just a miserable person it's fine <laughs> great way to start this podcast honestly i know right what a wonderful accepting conversation a safe space that we've created for each other (laughs) incredible okay we're talking what south by southwest yes we are all gonna be there and it's gonna be amazing should we talk about what's happening at south by southwest we should very exciting things are happening at South by Southwest. Oh, it is. Uh, by the time this drops, South by Southwest is already in full swing. And I will be speaking later in the week on Thursday. Woo, 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 woo. Let's go. Let's do South by Southwest. This is my second South by Southwest. I did the music festival last year. I didn't do the interactive portion of it, but... For folks who don't know, South by Southwest, abbreviated SXSW, happens in Austin. It started as a music festival, then became a film festival, and then the conference part got added on, and now it's like a big hubbub of everything media and culture related. And it's actually getting into a lot of tech work, venture capital, conversations. So what is it, people ask? And it's like everything. It's movies. It's music. It's a conference, it's meetups, it's parties, and it's uh, eight, or is it a nine day? It's a nine day festival of everything culture. So excited to be a part of it and actually excited to be taking Formula One's first ever panel at South by Southwest, which chronologically on how it got put on the calendar might be the first but there's a lot more racing stuff happening throughout the week i'm actually the last formula one panel of the week there is a mercedes panel happening we'll have chloe target adams from formula one's race promotions as one of the one of the featured sessions and it'll be a lot of fun Which kind of brings us to our topic for today, which is going to be a lot of stuff that we're talking about in the panel later in the week, is Formula One's impact to the world of road cars. And with Molly designing road cars for a living, I think this is a great topic for us to talk about today. I think Formula One's, and Molly, jump in at any point, please, Okay, has been a big big contributor to let's say the world of road cars the fact is also connected car systems and how autonomous vehicles are developing a lot of it started from the telemetry usage that f1 uses which is like ADAS now the industry term is advanced driver assistance systems for everybody who's bought a car in the last five years your lane control if you know your car is pulling you back into your lane, it's one of the part of the ADAS systems. Your automatic braking that happens when you're too close to another car, that's an ADAS system. That all kind of came from telemetry uh, in F1 
And a lot of it is going to be a backbone for autonomous vehicles in the future. So that's one part of it. Some of these things do get invented in F1 and then go to road cars. But sometimes one company has figured something out in the road car world. Some of that technology comes to F1, people hear about it, and it gets innovated by 10 different teams. And then it finds way through these automotive OEMs that are potentially participating or through just knowledge transfer of people who may be coming in and out. We're going to see a lot more of this in especially if sustainable fuels become like a big part of our future and F1 could really make the mark moving forward. Even though everybody's talking electric cars, electric cars are not the, are not the end all be all future as much as we think, because EV charging infrastructure is still a big problem and grids in most parts of the world, like India, or let's say, I can just talk to India. My parents still have four hours of rolling blackouts during the summer. I don't know if they've got enough power to charge vehicles. And there are documents that my dad sent me this week that said that India was going to be shooting for 500 megawatts of power on EV charging specifically. But again, I think that infrastructure is going to take really long to necessarily build in countries and sustainable fuel is being uh, pushed by a couple of different companies. I know Oramco is doing the work with F1 to develop it and also F2 and F3, which is a biosourced fuel. Uh, IndyCar is go- has gone to a sugarcane-based biofuel, but that's I don't think that's scalable. I don't think that will happen. WEC is using Y-Waste for their fuel in WEC this year, Total Energies. It uses a uh, byproduct of wine out of France. Oh, yeah. So there have been experimental ones, but I think the 100% synthetic fuel might be the scalable option because, again, you go into carbon natural things and you are mining something that's already out there. Let's see. I don't know how much sugarcane we'd need to go make IndyCar's version of the fuel run into our road cars. So this company called HIF, autonews.com today actually put out an article that said Porsche and Ferrari are pushing with the EU commission about letting synthetic fuel run internal combustion engines be exempt from the internal combustion engine ban that EU has put out for 2035 already, which means 12 years from now, there's not going to be a regular running internal combustion engine car in Europe based on the current pathway to 2050 net zero. But I think sustainable fuels in 2026 might just be the biggest game changer that F1 brings to road cars. And hey, this is coming from me who two years ago was like, what? This doesn't make any sense. Where is the ecosystem for it? But the adoption is really picking up in the last two years. And I've talked to a bunch of industry experts who do think F1's push towards sustainable fuel is actually the one that's helping also create a lot of political support for this when people start seeing that there may be a sustainability path here because they have committed to 2026 to going into a completely sustainable fuel. So let's see what the answer here really is. The first Formula One Grand Prix of the year. I feel like everybody's talking about this, but 
we have to talk about the first race of the year because there was a lot that happened on multiple fronts. I don't know where 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 do we start? We should talk about the fact that Pierre did so well. Yes. P20 to P9. That is how you do it. That was a great, great race. Go Pierre Gasly. The car looked fast. The strategy was called really well. And I am on a crusade. And I'm going to go on this crusade for a second. Everybody's freaking out about that car and saying that they've missed the mark and it's not performing like it should. They went into that test with a very specific plan prior to the first race of the year. They made some major changes to their car that affect the behavior of it. So they went in with a test plan, didn't touch a soft tire for single lap qualifying fast pace the entire test. Did all race pace, long sims, and extreme setup work. Seemed like they didn't get everything they wanted done and were still kind of doing extreme setup work for the race. But they changed some stuff in their suspension that they've gone to a completely different rear suspension philosophy from what they did Mm -hmm. last year. They've changed the way that their engine is cooled. So they are known for this really tall, everything stacked up top center line cooling. They've come down from that and stepped out wider into Mm -hmm. still center line cooled, but a little more conventional. And it's affected, that'll affect the center of gravity of your car because where your center of gravity would be a little bit higher, it now lowers your center of gravity. So now you have a different center of gravity. You're trying to understand how it performs. You have a different rear suspension plus all of your aerodynamic updates. And because of your center of gravity change, it affects your center of pressure, which is the uh, center of the aerodynamic load around the car that can affect your center of pressure. So there were a lot of things that can affect the behavior of that car and the way that it showed up during the race weekend, everybody was like, Alpine's missed the mark. And I'm like, can we give it a couple races? Because they historically have a slow start to the season. And then you have Pierre charging from P20 up to P9 and actually showing that the car has pace and showing that the car can pass and race on top of a great strategy call. I think that that is still a car that we should be watching. And I am sure people are sick of me of saying that. And I try to take off my... I like Pierre glasses to have these conversations about tech. I remove my bias of drivers that I like. And I think that that's a car we still need to be watching. I really do. Based on what they did show out of race pace and what they did show during the race, I, I don't think they missed the mark. I think inherently the field's tightened up and maybe they weren't anticipating how tight the field got. But I don't think that they're in like crisis. Oh my gosh, like Mercedes might be. Yeah, the... Like you said, it's the relative movement of where they are, right? Maybe they haven't made a huge jump from where they were last year. They haven't gotten worse. They also, I think the 15 millimeter floor height is also affecting your center of gravity, right? Like that change getting your, your floor got raised up. Like you said, the center line coolings now gotten distributed. Your entire, let's say the low distribution in the car has completely changed now. Yeah, because you have to ride at a certain ride height now because of the raise and all of that. So I think that the teams that can manage that effectively and understand the behavior of their car are really going to reap the benefits. Yeah, because I think that's literally why McLaren is doing really bad. Oh, McLaren. Uh, And a very interesting observation is that there are vehicles... Why am I calling vehicles? This is not commercial world. Race cars that are at the front of the grid on a podium that are Mercedes driven. And there are race cars that finish last that are Mercedes driven. I think this is the, I wouldn't call it the first time because they also power Williams 
Williams turned out to be a much better race car than anybody expected them to be. Along with Logan Sargent, who Molly and I have had a private conversation about, has never had good equipment to be able to prove his kind of skill set. So, well, I was watching Logan Sargent the entire race when everybody else was trying to watch Alonzo. But from the start of the grid to the end of the grid, everybody's got a very different kind of challenge right now. Mercedes is getting trumped by a customer team of their own. And while everybody keeps talking about, oh my God, Mercedes, Mercedes looks very defeatist. I don't agree with that. Uh, I've had really good friends of mine who are casual fans who do not go into very in-depth analysis of everything the way that we do. And they said, well, we're giving up this season. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, well, Toto and George accepted that Red Bull was going to win. We don't want to watch it anymore. Like, hold on. Race one. That is the point of this entire, entire sport. The technical director for Mercedes has confirmed that there is a new package coming at Imola. I think them accepting that is a very public sign that we are changing our design right now. Just letting you know. Don't have any other expectations from future designs right now. And I think it's an expectation setting game. It's a very calculated PR strategy that's happening with Mercedes right now. Aston somehow the Mercedes engine apparently is faster on speed traps in a certain places than even the Red Bull, which tells me that Red Bull's aerodynamics philosophy by Adrian Newey's winning because Dan Fallows is Adrian Newey's school of aerodynamics. So Dan Fallows at Aston got that design and somehow a Mercedes engine with a Red Bull arrow is the winner package. That's why Red Bull fought so hard to prevent him from leaving when they did was uh, he's like the right hand guy to Nui. I think Nui's CTO and Dan is was chief aerodynamicist at Red Bull. And for our mm-hmm. listeners unaware, there was a very public lawsuit that Red Bull levied against him about leaving. Um, to try and stop him from leaving because in F1, there's gardening leave rules where if you do exit, there's a six to 12 month period, depending on your job, where you go start your new job so that there's not mm-hmm. a potential information steal or information share from season to season that could benefit the team that you're going to. What happened with Dan was Dan's contract was not up until the end of 2022. So he mm-hmm. could not join Aston Martin until the start of the 2023 season. He notified Red Bull in 2021 that he was leaving for Aston Martin. And so the debate became, does the gardening leave happen from the moment I give you my notice and say I'm done? So is it six months then? Or is it six months from the end of my contract? So that actually would have meant that he wouldn't have been able to join Aston Martin until June of this year. And so this went to court and all of this stuff happened. And he actually joined Aston Martin in April of 2022, which means right in the height of 2023 car development, he was able to hop over and get to work on Aston Martin's car. So I think that we are seeing the fruits of Dan Fallow's labor and I am obsessed. It's awesome. It's everybody's like, it's the same car when they saw the livery. And I'm like, <laughs> in paint scheme only, have you looked at this thing? It's, it's wild. It's, there's so many little details and it's incredibly aerodynamically designed. And I think that the Mercedes argument that you're making is a great case for You don't have to have the most powerful car on the grid in terms of power unit. It's how you manage that balance with aerodynamics and how your aerodynamics are designed. Because you can have the most powerful engine on the grid 
and have a freaking tractor of a car. All of that keeping in mind, I think we do think that Aston has figured it out and don't write off Mercedes just yet. There's more coming down the pipeline. The power unit is solid. They just need to figure out their aero package. Let's stop Ferrari. Ferrari had a weekend, that's for sure. Um, it seemed like they were getting it together in terms of strategy and then mm-hmm. disaster struck. I mean, disaster struck before even the race started when they found an issue on uh, Charles' uh, control electronics and they had to pull a pack and all the control electronics and put new ones in before the race even started, which that's not a good look. You're only allowed two a season and they sent the one back to Marinello to figure out what was going on. And then in the middle of the race, all of a sudden, we get the dreaded no on the radio and he loses power. (laughs) I was like, this is not happening right now. Um, And there were a lot of theories going around as to what it could be. I saw some reports that said it was in the wire harness, um, which I think that there is some more information on that. And they said it was either human error or an assembly issue. And if you think about the things that that could be, and I mean, I don't want to sit here and build a full trouble tree. But um, there's a couple things with the human error, but they've ruled that out. They said it's not human error. It's actually assembly. So that means it's how the wire harness was assembled in and that it was inadequate packaging, which means the way that the wire harness is either routed or held, it's most likely Mm -hmm. either getting pinched as it is assembled in, which means that you are cutting a wire and you lose signal or it's chafing because it's rubbing on something and it just rubs to a point where it rubs through. Or if it's inadequately restrained, so like you will put, I call them Christmas trees, you'll pop Christmas trees or different holders in to hold the harness nice and rigid and safe to try and reduce oscillation where you're bouncing back around and back and forth because uh, Bahrain is actually a very, very bumpy track. You will just do that anyway. That's best practice. But at a track like Bahrain, you really want to make sure that that's done and it's done well. And it actually sounds like the reports out of Marinello are that there was some sort of something happening. And if I had to guess, it was this inadequate move inadequate restraint because you're going to rattle around. Mm-hmm. And when you have unconstrained harness movement, you'll actually wear through the terminal plating on your connections. And what will wind up happening is you'll just wear through because you're chattering and rattling around so much in your mated surfaces that you'll lose electrical connection because there's going to be no more conductive material left. And because of the way that these cars control systems and the safety of these cars are set up, if you lose that system, your car will do an automatic loss of power and just say, nope, it's a fail safe or this, I've lost this signal. I cannot compete anymore. I cannot run. This signal's gone. My car cannot run without it. And it'll shut a car off. Um, you'll get that in like road cars. They'll do it too. There's modes that certain things will fail. It could be something as simple as a sensor going wrong. And a road car will go into like a reduced mode because of that. And so I, I think that that's what happened is just that signal or something happened with that harness. I don't know if it's shorted. It could actually arc too. That's one where you can, it'll, it'll arc under damage and fry itself. But there was a loss of signal or a loss of connection that threw the car into no power because it was very sudden. And I have a pretty trained ear. 
where like if I'm listening to the onboard, I can be like, oh, that was a drive shaft. Oh, that was a turbo. Oh, you put the rods through the block. Like I can hear that stuff. I've, I've listened to a lot of failures. Like there was a turbo wine last season Ferrari had that I was like, it sounds like an electric toothbrush. That turbo is going to go any moment. <laughs> like I, I can hear stuff. And so it didn't sound like anything like that. And so I was kind of pulling the electrical thread or maybe something fried in his control electronics, like the actual inverter boxes like maybe something fried there but it just sounds like it was inadequate packaging and this is just kind of like it's a fact of this stuff like it it happens really really commonly so i i'm not surprised it's unfortunate but you live and learn especially with packaging modeling but also do we think ferrari's reliability issues have been solved this season no i'm a big proponent of you don't know what you don't know and in a new regulation set that's the key in my opinion, and you can try to plan for everything and analyze everything till the cows come home, but you don't know what you don't know. And reliability is one of those things where I can fix one issue and introduce a whole slew of others. It's it's a slippery slope sometimes. And I think that just given the development cycle of these cars, I don't think it's going to be an overnight solve fix. I don't think we're done with reliability issues because they would have been working on this power unit and this car all of last year for this year. And they've already mm-hmm. started the 2024 car. And because of freezes and budget cap, I, I don't think it's we're done. It's going to be a storyline for Ferrari all season. I think it's also to recognize how much Fred Vassar as or Frederick, as Ted Kravitz has told us, he likes to be called Frederick. Frederick Vassar uh, has the power to do as quickly, right? Because Mattia going away at the end of last season doesn't really automatically fix Ferrari's problems. It's going to be a year-long journey, and there's twofold issues, right? One is this reliability issues that somehow this package in Ferrari has. Like you said, you don't know what you don't know. It's magically not going to fix itself overnight. The second part of it is organizational. We do think that Frederick there is doing a great job Or let's say he's doing a competent enough job being in the first couple of months of his job, getting a new strategist in, very young, uh, had a strategy, I think Naveen Jain, that's what his name is? Yes. Yes, he's got Naveen in there. We've got a new chief revenue officer. They've got a new finance guy. And Ferrari is getting a little bit, we saw Elkan in there. I saw Piero Ferrari there. Ferrari family being there. You can see that leadership is circling. Leadership is moving around to want to see what the changes are. Frederick is under really a lot of pressure, I would say, to make the right changes. And he's taking it in great stride. So I would say for the reliability stuff, how do you get to the problem or like the solution as quickly? And I don't think there's an easy solve. Maybe some overhauls need to be made in the engineering side. But even if you do... Maybe you introduce more troubles because you don't know who's going to come in from the outside and be able to fix it. So he is taking that organizational lens right, to change Ferrari, being an outsider who does not speak Italian, which is such a big thing. Uh, if you've ever worked in the Italian car industry, which I have, they take a while to warm up to you, but they're wonderful people. I think it's just that initial hump that he has to go through. And like you said, it's going to be a storyline for the rest of the season because any job that anybody has, the first one year, I call it a wash. 12 months, you're going to actually learn on the job. Like 
There's a reason we didn't hear a lot about Laurent Rossi till end of 2021. He had that job entirely for the year of 2021. And he was trying, learning things. He only started becoming a little bit more public around the end of the year. Started getting more airtime, public images. And now in his third year of his job, we're listening and seeing a lot more about him. So I think we have to be patient with Ferrari this year. I think patience, patience, patience is the name of the game. Again, people forget it's not a stick and ball sport. You can just screw things on. You can just do a mindset switch and your sport completely changes. Like anything else, this is going to take time. So Mercedes and Ferrari fans, don't give up your fandom tickets yet. It's coming. (laughs) Everything that you're looking for is coming eventually. I think it's funny that you just told people in the fastest sport in the world that you have to be patient. Yes, patience. Patience, friends. Uh, Go drive some fast cars instead on a road somewhere. No, don't do it. Stay inside, speed limit. Speaking of driving fast cars on a road... That was a great segue. Did you know that Kimi Raikkonen is going back to NASCAR and he's actually going to be the first person ever to have raced F1 and NASCAR at COTA? Team Trackhouse, let's go. Yes. So for anybody unaware in NASCAR, Trackhouse Racing has a car called Project 91 and it is a special one-off car that they just put whoever they want in for one-off races and it's meant to attract other disciplines of racers to come and try NASCAR out. And Kimmy infamously raced in it in Watkins Glen uh, last year in August, where he unfortunately DNF'd due to a wreck, but is back for the Coda race. And I'm really excited because he was actually on track for a top 10 finish. I think it was in that race, which was incredible for being his first ever NASCAR race. So I'm super excited to see my Ferrari worlds and NASCAR worlds combine because I'm a Ferrari girl, if you didn't know that about me. Um, So I think it's going to be really cool to see Kimmy take NASCAR again and actually see how he does at Coda, which is a track that he knows. I don't think he ever raced at the Glen in F1. So to see him at a track that he's familiar with is going to be super fun. And I just, I love everything Trackhouse is doing with that car. I can't wait to see who else they get. I was surprised to see a repeat driver so soon. But I think that they said they have like triple digits of names lined up of who wants to come do Project 91, which is just incredible for the sport and the team. So I'm super excited about that. It should be really, really fun. If we want to talk about continued crossovers of other sporting series, um, speaking of Kimi Okoda, if anybody knows who Jordan Taylor is, a.k.a. Mr. Rodney Sandstorm, uh, Jeff Gordon's biggest fan, is actually going to be driving also in NASCAR, making his debut at Coda, which is going to be huge. Uh, a lot of people have been trying to get him in a NASCAR for a long time, and he's actually subbing for Chase Elliott, who is injured, and we hate that that is what got Jordan into a NASCAR for the first time. Uh, get well soon, Chase, for sure. But uh, Jordan is also making his NASCAR debut at Coda, the same race as Kimmy, and I think he could be a ringer. I think both of them could be a ringer, so that's going to be a super fun race to watch. Yeah. Uh, I may just get tickets and um, get Dakota. Yeah, there you go. Or we call our friends at NASCAR. Oh, Allie wants to know who Rodney Sandstorm is. <laughs> oh, my God. How do we explain Rodney Sandstorm? 
he's Jordan's alter ego that I I think he explained it on a podcast that it's because Jordan is very shy normally and he made this alter ego who is Jeff Gordon's biggest fan and a race car driver for like carts like an amateur cart driver and he's a jort wearing velcro new balance like dude with a mustache and pit vipers and i don't know how else to explain it uh is he's like a super fan right abby yeah he's a super fan who is dressed in this big colorful rainbow nascar jacket and cut off denim shorts and you've seen very famous alonzo pictures with him because Yes. Alonzo is a big Rodney He's an Alonzo fan, fan. Yeah, because yes. he posted Alonzo dressed up in Rodney's outfit after Alonzo was on the podium uh, on his yeah. Instagram. So people just, if you're a racing fan in any kind of racing, go follow Rodney Sandstorm. Yeah, it's, it's a great follow. Yeah, Rodney is just like a moment of joy and light in anybody's life. We don't have to be a racing fan to follow Rodney Sandstorm. He was the Jorts person of the year, 2022. Of course you need to follow him. And yes, I said Jorts, not sports. But okay, I think we've talked about a lot of random things. Uh, Go follow Rodney Sandstorm. And while you're at it, go follow our podcast as well on social media at Engine CVs and Espressos and our media platform Racing Forces. Follow us along on more South by Southwest content that will come on next week. But we'll be back for the next episode talking about fun things all having to do with the world of cars, racing, and everything in between. Thank you for listening in to Engines, EVs, and Espresso. Stay caffeinated. shorts even mean like denim shorts jean shorts oh <laughs> 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 <laughs>